Namaste. In this episode of Over to Shailaja, I will discuss the most important things on which India's performance at the Olympics depends. What were the reasons that prevented India, such a large, talented and diverse country from rising to its full potential? Four subjects always come up in most sports discussions, write-ups and conversations. First, do the Indian sports federations that actually manage individual sports have the leadership and resilience needed to be able to excel? How do the federations function in other countries? Second is the funding for sports and all that goes, is it really sufficient to win? Third, how does one get more kids and their families to treat sports as worth trying for and excelling in? Fourth, do women athletes who are 50% of the players get enough protection and encouragement to persevere and shine? To get to the root of the issues, I invited three guests to my podcast. First, Neelam Kapoor, who until 2019 was the Director General of the Sports Authority of India and prior to that the Principal Information Officer of the Government of India. She has covered the perspectives of budgets, the progress of Kelo India which finds players from the grassroots and allied questions of women athletes and their protection. I also talked to Shashank Atriya who is a lawyer with specialization in sports law himself a tennis player at the state as well as national level and finally i was lucky to get a small conversation with rani rampal the captain of the indian hockey team who talks about the challenges that women players face you're tuned into over to shalaja a podcast where we will talk about diverse experiences from my long career as a civil servant and the different roles i have played for over 50 years but the podcast is not about my career or my achievements i bring you stories rooted in real life which remain and are even more relevant today i'm your host shailaja chandra and this is my podcast over to shailaja this month as the indian team came home from the olympics all indians saluted neeraj chopra's gold for his record breaking javelin throw followed by two silvers won by mirabai chanu and ravi dahia indians also watched pv sindhu's incredible badminton volleys and her receiving the bronze along with lovelina borgoye for boxing and bajrang punia also later for wrestling 
The Indian women's hockey team played its first ever Olympic semi-finals and the men's hockey team won an Olympic medal after 41 years. Celebrations were in order. But once we saw dozens of medals won by other countries, the joy and satisfaction quickly became a story of a glass half full or half empty, depending on the mood. The half full people remain delighted that India has won its largest haul of medals at the Olympics. The half empty glass critics, however, say that in a population of 1.3 billion, why did we get such a small tally competing against countries whose populations were one tenth of India's size and even smaller? How can India be happy, people ask, with just seven medals when the top countries captured dozens of gold, silvers and bronze honours? Was India doing enough to improve and what mattered most to achieve that? A DICE, that is a District Information System for Education report, which is drawn up by the Ministry of Education, it surveyed about 1.5 million primary schools covering 680 districts a few years ago and it found that a large percentage of the schools had no playgrounds. When all medal-winning countries focus on early training, high technology, state-of-the-art equipment and sports medicine, are we doing enough to encourage kids to play? Sports experts, including coaches, say that giving low priority to sports compromises on a child's growth, physical as well as mental fitness, and by not playing competitively in at least one sport, kids lose out on crucial life skills such as team building, leadership, managing their own anger and failures, even the ability to speak up and show natural emotions of joy and a sporting spirit even if one has to face a loss. Some say our athletes have to confront poor nutrition and environment and even an absence of basic sporting facilities and equipment. Women often face social pressures which aren't easy to fight. The story of Rani Rampal, the Indian women's team hockey captain who persevered with a broken bat and drank diluted milk to somehow get counted in the hockey coaching class has now become legendary. Everyone wants to help, but no one knows how. In trying to understand the experience and pin down the policy issues, I spoke to three people whose viewpoint you will hear in this podcast. My first guest was Neelam Kapoor, the former Director General of the Sports Authority of India, who told me what is happening, the improvements made and in the making, including about whether the funds were reaching. Why is BCCI in such a vibrant and rich kind of a trajectory? And how do other sports differ? What has been done by SAI, SAI as they call it? And equally, what is still needed to be done? 
how everything boils down to the management by the individual sports federations and even a suggestion that instead of chasing laws, they should be converted into companies and be made accountable came up in her talk with me. It is worth listening to her rather balanced and knowledgeable conversation which will follow. So let's start with her. Neelam, I did a little um, homework and I found that the total budget of nearly half goes to Kelo India within the total budget of um, the Sports Authority of India and the, the government. How do funds actually percolate to the schools, to the sports organizations and reach the aspiring players? Uh, mostly they are, Shailaja. What has happened is that the Kelo India, which is a scheme set up a few years ago, is actually for grassroots sports development. Now, this means coaching, it means equipment, it means uh, diet for the uh, athletes who have been picked up for this sports training and also giving a stipend to them. So uh, a lot of money is going uh, through to private academies. Some of it is going to the governments as well. But as far as equipment is concerned, while the tendering processes do manage most of it, wherever we have specialized equipment, those need to be, uh, I think, a little more flexible. We need to give the sports federations a greater role to play. We have done it in the past for specialized equipment when we buy uh, for the Olympic elite athletes. But even for the grassroots athletes, I think the equipment is very important. And if we can even further, I think, uh, make these procedures flexible, give greater role to sports federations, I think we will be able to make this process much more efficient. But where do you rate, I mean, you've given the future, but where do you rate whatever your conversance is with this whole thing? Was it, would you give it 50%, 90%? What exactly, where do you position I think whatever is being uh, done? I think it's between 60 to 70%. I think right. we are off to a great start. Right. Uh, there was a very, uh, very transparent procedure of selecting the private academies, of evaluating them and of bringing them into the program. Now we are about three years into this program and funding has gone for three years. I think what is needed now is a performance audit and also a financial audit. Let's remember that sport is a very exacting field. A lot of children will show initial talent, but they may not be able to the kind of discipline, to the kind of rigor that sport actually demands. So they will inevitably fall. Sometimes there are family pressures. You see, today there's so much of pressure of studies and academics on uh, children by parents themselves that they say, yeah, you know, the child is not doing well enough in sports. I think he's wasting his time. So let's pull him out and put him back into academics. So there is a lot of dropout for a variety of reasons. Now, those children need to be taken out of the system. New children need to be brought in. So a performance audit, a constant monitoring of what's happening on the ground is really, really important because we are dealing with a huge number. Let's remember that we are a very, very large country. Every state has its own issues. There's a lot of diversity. A lot of these children are from uh, schools which uh, are in the local language. So we have to create a balance between academics and sports. We have to ensure that we keep supporting the best people to come up right to the top. 
and those who drop out for a variety of reasons then need to be taken out so that the funds are not wasted on those who really don't come up to the kind of uh, is required in sports. Neelam, I want to ask you a question which everyone asks and I would uh, really like you to be um, just simple, but it is important. If the BCCI can be self-sufficient, independent and rich, why is it not possible to create similar bodies when it comes to other sports? One has heard of the Tata Football Academy and now the JSW Academy and many others which have been set up by private individuals. Is that the way to go? What will it take to really encourage large corporations and many more people to contribute to the sector? I'll begin with a very basic principle that sport needs an audience. Sport needs spectators. Without an audience and without spectators, sports uh, will not grow, will not flourish. Uh, the Olympics lost a lot of money because they were not able to do the ticket sales. But I think it's very, very interesting to see that. Uh, so just to come in, the reason that BCCI has so many revenues and so much of money coming in is basically because that we have developed certain products or events that are different from the five-day slow, boring matches of test cricket. Today, you have a T20, you have one-day matches, you have the IPL, you have things which excite the spectator, which is getting in more audiences. Now, the same principle needs to be followed for sports other than cricket. What happened in Kelo India, those are school games, that the government had a tie-up with star sports for live telecast of these games. And every year, according to that contract, Star Sports gives a revenue of two crores to the government. Now, this is just the beginning. What happened in Kelo India was with these children coming from all over the country, we got coverage done in the local languages, in the papers, in the local TV uh, channels. And so the children got a certain respect. They got a certain regard back home from where they came from. Thank you. I also want to ask you, what can be done in relation to what you said to involve the media in a way that they're assured of eyeballs and TRPs? Because it's a chicken and egg situation. Will you first find the eyeballs and bring in media? Or will media be able to create the eyeballs? So how would you deal with that? You're a media person, basically. Uh, I think it's already happened. I think the fact that Star Sports and Kelo India have taken the lead in doing this kind of partnership, a lot of media organizations are interested. Even radio is interested. I mean, commentaries of games, interviews with sports uh, persons. This is something that everybody wants to listen to. And the recent Olympics, I think, generated a huge media interest. People were watching hockey. People were watching table tennis something that has never happened in India before. So I think a momentum has built up. If we can look at these sports channels, if these sports federations can have talks with these sports channels, if the public broadcasters such as Doodarshan can also take a lead in that, I think we will be taking the first steps that will grow on its own. It's an organic kind of a form. It'll get its own energy and it'll expand further to come to a related question because you must have dealt with human beings, actual players, actual would-be players. 
you know, players have no formal representation and nor do they have a voice through any association or union. Without taking the whole structure, making it bureaucratic, how can one see that there is oversight without interference and the people involved, the real players and particularly young people, boys and girls, and particularly girls, how do they get protected without being treated as though they are being, you know, chaperoned all the time? I think this is a very, very essential part of our uh, sports training and of the culture that we will inculcate in our academies. Let's remember that we are dealing with very young people. We are dealing with children. We are dealing with minors. When a parent sends his child or her child to an institution, and uh, we have about 15,000 people in the SAI facilities alone today, of which 50% are girls, they must feel confident that their child is going to a safe place and the child will be protected. Now for this, I think we need to generate awareness. There are enough laws, there are enough protocols. We need to sensitize administrators, coaches, uh, as well as the young people. They must also know who they can go to for help. And I'd like here to quote an example of how in Sports Authority of India, when I was the Director General, we did a massive training program of coaches, of administrators, on what is the right kind of conduct, how to be sensitive, how not to say anything innocently, but which can be uh, you know, misinterpreted. Uh, I think these things are very important. So we need to have awareness. And we did this and we got an excellent response. We also told the uh, youngsters that this is the helpline. This is the person you can go to locally for help if you have any problem, if you feel uncomfortable with a coach. So once you have that kind of awareness, I think people feel a little more confident. And um, I think the whole atmosphere generally becomes uh, a little more safe and uh, people are able to work in, a, in, in the right kind of way. The second part is that if there are any complaints of sexual harassment, I think those need to be taken extremely seriously by the administration. They need to be dealt with very expeditiously. We had a situation where we had to suspend some coaches uh, and we had to even actually terminate them. Now, I know these are harsh steps, but one or two cases like that, I think does send the message that there will be zero tolerance on this. So I think it's a bit of both. I think you have to raise awareness. Let us also remember that a lot of these children come from socially and economically challenged families. For them, sport is a bridge or it's a way of life out of a very, very difficult situation. And sometimes they will take a lot of exploitation just to stay in the academy. Now, that is something that we should not allow to happen. So I think this is also something that we did start and I think the culture is coming up, it's, uh, it's, it's growing. And we have to keep a constant vigil that these kind of principles are not forgotten. All protocols that the law provides us, whether it's the POXO Act or the Sexual Harassment Act, we must ensure that these protocols are followed to the T in all our institutions, as well as the private academies that the government is funding.
Thank you, Neelam. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you because you have really lifted the veil on many subjects which get discussed, but we don't really know the uh, inside story. And you were able to tell us things which don't really come out in articles and all in the same perspective that you've given. Thank you so much. It was very nice of you to have agreed to talk. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this talk as well. a very brief conversation with the captain of the women's hockey team and I just getting to her showed me that it was impossible if I had not pulled the wires and strings through the Indian administrative service to which I once belonged. It was the resident commissioner of Odisha which as we all know had helped the hockey um, um, sport both men's and women's in a big way. Um, it was he who was able to help me track down Rani and get her to speak to me. I am grateful for that. As it was before, but now it's been changed a lot. Because the girls are taking medals in the last Olympics. The girls have two medals. Now the girls have more medals. So the parents have changed a mindset. We can also put the girls in sports. So the girls can do something. काफी पेरेंट्स भी काफी इंस्पायर हो रहे हैं अभी ना लड़कियों को देखके कि लड़कियां कितना अच्छा काम कर रही हैं सिर्फ स्पोर्ट्स में नहीं बाकी फील्ड्स में भी लड़कियां बहुत अच्छा कर रही हैं तो इसलिए ये चेंज बहुत आ रहा है और आने वाले टाइम में और भी चेंज आएगा क्योंकि गवर्नमेंट्स भी काफी सारे لڑکیوں کا تو ان کے بیگراؤنڈ وغیرہ سب مانے پڑھے لکھے تھے کہ بیگراؤنڈ کیسا تھا کیسے ان کا انوبھو رہا آپ کیپٹن رہی آپ نے مینج کیسے کیا اتنے ڈائیورس لڑکیوں کو मैम इतना इजी नहीं होता एक लड़की के लिए ना यहाँ तक पहुँचने के लिए बिकॉज़ हमारे जितने भी प्लेयर हैं वो सब एक मिडल क्लास या मिडल क्लास लोअर क्लास से आते हैं सभी प्लेयर्स और जहाँ पे सब गांव रूरल एरिया से आते हैं तो जैसे आपका फर्स्ट क्वेश्चन था कि इतना इजी नहीं है लड़कियों को सबके दिमाग में ये रहता है पेरेंट्स की घर से बाहर निकालेंगे तो पता नहीं सब लोग क्या सोचेंगे क्या बोलेंगे तो बहुत डिफिकल्ट था ऊपर से फिर पावर्टी के साथ मतलब हैंडल करना जो इतनी गरीबी से उठ के प्लेयर्स आते हैं लेकिन बीइंग अ कैप्टन मुझे ये था कि मुझे एक अच्छा एग्जांपल सेट करना है टीम में कि बाकी जो यू नो मुझे बिलीव है जो लीड बाय एग्जांपल होता है उसमें कि मैं अपना काम पहले अच्छे से करे ताकि बाकी भी उस काम को फॉलो करे और मैं भी एक ऐसी फैमिली से आई हूँ कि मैंने बहुत नीचे से उठ के वहाँ तक पहुँचने के लिए बहुत मेहनत की है तो मुझे लगता है बाकी सब प्लेयरों ने भी वही किया है कि वो बहुत नीचे से उठ के यहाँ तक पहुँचे बहुत बहुत धन्यवाद आपको मैं बहुत बधाई देती हूँ सारे महिला वर्ग के आपके फैंस जो है उनके तरफ से और मैं बहुत आपको अपने तो आशीर्वाद देना चाहती हूँ कि बहुत बहुत आप बहुत कुछ कमाल ले लाइफ में धन्यवाद In India, each sport is managed by an independent federation recognized and funded by the Central Ministry of Youth Affairs and Sports. 
Most people other than the federations complain that they operate like personal fiefdoms and are largely non-transparent and they are headed by mostly politicians who have continued at the helm for decades. Elections aren't usually held on time or at all and the absence of transparency has even led the Delhi High Court very recently directing the central government to implement some rules that would introduce an upper limit of 70 and a maximum tenure of at just three terms, not endless terms, for the National Sports Federation chiefs. Now one more word about funding. Governments both central and state fund most of the training and development of the sports infrastructure. The last five years have seen a manifold increase in the sports budget allocated by the Government of India. In 2016-17, Finance Minister Arun Jaitley had allocated something up to 1,600 crores, both plan and non-plan. In 2019-20, that shot up to almost 2,900 crores, which is about $380 million just for sports and it was later revised downwards because of the pandemic but the allocation was certainly if not double a little short of that. The other aspect relates to the constitutional position of sport and the code that lays down how the federations must function. For decades it has been lamented that sport has remained on the state list of the constitution, which was written at a time when sport was little more than a pastime or a hobby. Given that the public is the primary investor in sport, anyone seeking to govern sport must be accountable to the investor, in this case the Indian public. And then there is the whole question of who instills accountability. What is the present status of the law and legal oversight? How does India differ from other countries which win medals in dozens? To answer that, I spoke to Shashank Atriya, who is a rare combination of being a lawyer currently with the Vidhi Centre for Legal Policy, but also a tennis player who has played at the state and national levels. His real interest is in sports law, but he is very conversant with how Indian administrative systems operate, be it sports, public health, education, at the state level. Shashank, sports is on the state list of the constitution and not on the union or concurrent list. So, We also know that a sports law was drafted, but it hasn't made any headway for years. Can you fill listeners into where we are right now as simply as possible? Um, Thank you, uh, Madam. The the question of sports has always uh, been been a fact where we've never found true owners. Neither the state has remained the true owners nor the center. But everybody seems to want an action of the time. Uh, but if you look at the constitutional setup, like you appropriately mentioned, the states are the constitutionally uh, empowered bearers of the respective sports. But then it's the center who pumps in most money and who takes rather more ownership of sports. But then this fact, this 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 issue between the center and the state has really not been 
the cause of much question, but rather than how are we going to govern the federations and between the center and the state, who is actually required to govern the federations? Because the question of sports, you can't, we can't leave it to each state to be successful. We need to be successful as a country and for which we need all states to act in unison. Uh, a similar sort of conundrum you see with public health and education for that matter as well, wherein you've given states the liberty to frame policies and legislations, but then you need some level of unified approach to solve a common problem. So this is something that is, is a question, but how we seem to address it, we've never found the right approach. But in 2011, sort of in the, in the backdrop of the Commonwealth Games, subsequently some few other uh, international championships that, the, that India hosted, we saw a, a, an interest in reforms to sports and hence the 2011 and 2013 bill on the National Sports Development Bill, which sort of was a fairly a game changer, primarily because it firstly and foremostly the problem that we see with Indian sports and something that most of us are aware and our audience are likely to be aware as well, is that the the age of the uh, folks who run the sports federations are fairly old and they don't seem to bring in with them the youth and the, the energy that's required to run a sports federation and bring the kind of success with it. So the, the 2013 bill sort of changed this and placed an upper limit, and a fairly higher upper limit of 70 years. And amongst other things was created transparency, make sure that the federations are accountable and uh, so on and so forth. And it was, it was truly a reform that was worth having. But then there was really no intention in parliament and it never went through. But subsequently, what, what the ministry ended up doing is they brought out a more concise version of the bill through some form of government orders or what we might possibly call it executive orders legally. So these orders were encapsulated certain level of guide, guidelines and criteria on how federation should operate but did not address the big questions, which were, okay, who should, how should, what is the retirement age of a chairperson of a federation? How many years can he compete or contest elections in a federation? And those questions of legacy, questions of how can we reform, truly reform federations were never captured in this court. But this has been the large problem and the law has sort of been a mute spectator. It can really do much, but then the will is, is, is definitely missing. But do we have a law? I mean, was it drafted? Is it is it uh, in Parliament? Was it introduced? Yeah, it 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 uh, made it to cabinet, and it was considered at the cabinet level. But it was never formally introduced in Parliament. There was oh. much conversation that took place uh, prior to its introduction in Parliament. Uh, even for instance, the Prime Minister back then also commented on the need for such a bill. But then it really never got introduced on the floor of the house because there was the internal resistance itself. And many, and some things that some of you also may be aware is that many of the uh, parliamentarians themselves are bearers of various federations. So this is, this is something that was a roadblock, internal roadblock for the passage of a, such a bill. Good. Now, can you also tell me that if we are really only having this National Sports Development Code, uh, so to speak, a bunch of executive orders and guidelines and all that, but if the federations just fail to select the players or train them or equip them or look after them as needed, uh, who can really do anything about it? 
that's a good point and a, a great way to to look at look at why why do we have federations I and mean, let's first understand as to what is the need for federations and why is there a model of federations um, evolved and why is it that federations are an important stakeholder in sports see there is when whenever we look at any subject for that matter be it sports health education we have to sort of measure public interest we have to see why is the government interfering and how much should the government interfere and federations are extremely critical for one one key point which is identification of talent and organization tournaments to identify talents much better so this is their limited role so now if you look at who should therefore be primarily responsible it's it's the way the sports is governed in the end of the structure it's, it's it's fairly interesting and also very complex uh it you have the sports federations primarily responsible for grassroots development identification of talent whereas the government's responsible for building infrastructure and funding athletes so you have this dual structure where the identification of talent is with the sports federation and the uh, maintenance of infrastructure and funding with the government so both of them should act together but then however while the government might do its job many times the federation might not uh, there is also i mean the complexity gets add on right i mean even even if there is a dual structure uh, there is also the international bodies that the federations are ultimately responsible to the the international bodies uh, recognize some of these federations and the the key criteria that the international federations give governments for running sports is they insist on autonomy they insist that the federation must be completely independent and have zero interference of the government but then in india our federations lack capacity our federations lack the will and the intent to sort of truly recognize sports and identify talent so we want governments to intervene and reform them but there is a counter backlash from the international federations who keep saying that let's not have government intervene so we are caught in this in this in this sort of struggle between pleasing the international federations and making sure that they are truly autonomous and at the same time ensuring that the governments come in and reform them So how have other countries dealt with it can you give me one or two examples of countries which are managing this well yeah i mean let's look at the classic example of the 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 olympic leaders for this time which is the united states right i mean there is maybe one of most from best examples to see how sports can be run uh, in the, in the in the uh, uh, in the united states it's completely decentralized so the government has very little role to play and it's mostly the federations who operate and how do these federations operate the federations have a, a board they have, so they have their own staff and they have their own uh, charters which are subsequently requ- are required to be in line with a list of global best practices so there the government's intervention is limited but the federations themselves know but unless they discipline themselves and have an element of transparency will they be able to uh, pick up grassroots talent much better while you have federations taking most of the calls and deciding who should participate and who should not you do of course have some level of uh, systemic uh, oversight by uh, by an internet by a us or us olympic committee or a us olympic commission as they may call it which overlooks all these and ensures that there is these that these they find that in order their administrative practices are transparent and to ensure the governance mechanisms are well taken care of but then their their influence is fairly limited because they they created such structures where 
there's automatic institutional accountability self accountability that comes which is fairly missing in the indian context thank you shashank you have been really very very good in explaining this because it has been raised by many people but never really answered in the way you have thank you so much in 2010 to around to between 2010 and 15 after the successful launch of the indian premier league uh, there came a paradigm shift people began seeing sport beyond just playing and coaching athletes are now getting scholarships contracts salaries endorsements plus recognition and respect for those who see the glass half full there is a silver lining Recently the education policy and the central government's approach has favored moving sports from an extracurricular activity to becoming a part of the curriculum grading in sports it is said will be counted counted for grading indeed this could be a game changer and it will be interesting to see how this pans out in the states I end this podcast with a big thank you for listening. I do hope you learned something new and see as I do that indeed there is hope for India if we just do things right. My next episode affects us all. In the aftermath of the pandemic, it's time to review preparedness for hospitalization and the challenges of health insurance. Has having health insurance helped? What is happening across the country? How should we prepare ourselves better? Do tune in next fortnight on Friday by listening to Over to Shailaja on the Quint.